Well, welcome to the uh, second iteration of Eric's one-on-one. -on -one. I have uh, Jason here from Convoy. Um, and again, I've uh, decided to do these interviews to help, uh, you know, fill in some gaps from Mr. Mishka leaving. But the goal for me is to learn about things that I am interested in. And this was a thesis that was set by uh, Mr. Levy, uh, who is kind of the reason he does it as well. So I'm bringing people in here just to understand what they do, get kind of a real scoop in there, try to avoid the PR fluff. Um, and again, to see how they fit with the ecosystem and see how they're innovating in their fields. Um, so why am I interested in Convoy? Well, Convoy is one of the OG uh, VCs in the video game space. Um, and, you know, the current market is is slightly challenging, <laughs> to say the least. You know, IPO, uh, the market's absolutely closed. M&A is coming to a relatively screeching halt, although that may actually pick up soon. Um, and again, there was a ton of money that was invested by the VC community over the last few years uh, in this kind of unprecedented bubble, particularly in the gaming space and uh, other spaces as well. Um, but basically, the question is, how do VCs work in general and how do they work in such an environment? So again, we have Jason Chapman, who is a managing partner at Convoy. He started Convoy with his brother, Josh, which is interesting, um, and then also Jackson Vaughn. Uh, welcome, Jason. Tell me kind of a bit about your background, the founding story, you know, the, the uh, synthesis and genesis of uh, Convoy and how long you've been working at this. Thanks for having me, Eric. Uh, and, you know, I also want to just kick off and say I'm hopefully I'm not your second victim, as you sort of proposed as this <laughs> might be for this conversation. So hopefully I can hold my own. Um, been a long listener of Deconstructor of Fun. It's been a minute since I've gotten to chat with you guys on on, on, a, on the podcast. So enjoy these one-on-ones with you. And so thanks for having me. Um, background for, for me and also for Josh and Jackson, we all three have a very similar background, which is a little unique, where all three of us grew up in uh, Africa, Latin America, and Asia as kids. Uh, so Josh and I are the son of a U.S. diplomat, so that's why we moved. So think of a military-ish background, just in embassies instead of military bases. Jackson was the son of an uh, you know, NGO worker, kind of in a similar format. And it happened that we uh, overlapped in two countries with Jackson, in Bolivia and then in Mozambique. Uh, and so we did not live in, you know, when a lot of people think of the embassy life, they think of like the James Bond movies of you know, him running in and out of Western European embassies that are beautiful. That, that's a little different than the, uh, the reality of, of how we grew up. Uh, so let me fast forward. We all three uh, went to the States for, for college. We ended up doing a bunch of different things. Um, I eventually ended up working in research at IBM. Uh, my background is quite technical. I uh, convinced Jackson uh, to join me in my same research division, so I actually recruited him in. I looked really smart to my bosses at the time when I got him to join. And we were in the division that worked on predominantly machine learning applications within the larger enterprise. And a lot of applications that we worked on ended up being in games. Um, mm -hmm. And so that was kind of our first foray into the, what I kind of call the infrastructure and back kind of underbelly of games. Um, and so that's what got us hooked into the business side. We always, always were big gamers ourselves personally. Um, then we kind of started talking with Josh, who happens to double as my real-life brother. Um, you know, we often have been interviewed and questioned about what's it like to work with your actual brother. Um, and I have to be, you know, you know, not sound super cheesy, but I'm very grateful to him for being 
extremely strong in a lot of areas that I am not. Um, so, Eric, you can press into that later if you want to. Um, but wait a bit. But, but everyone wants to know who's smarter. Oh, man. Uh, I think on Mondays and Wednesdays I'm smarter because he wakes up a little slower. I think Tuesdays, Thursdays, he's probably smarter. <laughs> on Fridays, it's a toss-up. So I think it just depends. It just depends Dip- on the day. Diplomatic, diplomatic. I have, a, I have hey, an idea. Hey, you heard my tra- you heard my training. You heard my training. You know, like, I, I, no, uh, in in all seriousness, I think it depends on the topic. I think you know we lean heavily on Josh, uh, who had a background at BlackRock and Morgan Stanley, when it comes to sizing at markets. For the record, yeah. I actually I grew up in Saudi Arabia, so I kind of understand the uh, nomadic lifestyle of uh, expats, which is different, unique background. Um, where where in just, Saudi Arabia did you grow up, Eric? Uh, in the east. East Coast, Jubail. Um, and then I went back to Saudi in, 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 in 2000. And I also have a twin brother. But by, for the record, I am better looking and smarter than my twin brother. Nice. Man, which, which, is, which is just truth, right? Um, I would have assumed. I would have assumed, yeah. Eric. I would have assumed, for sure. Um, so Recent changes in the app stores are boon to mobile game developers. Now you can sell in-game items and currencies with big savings on transaction fees. And Exola just added three new features to their web shop for mobile game solution to help you level up your monetization practices outside the app stores. The three solutions are subscriptions, analytics, and promotions. Now, subscriptions are a smart add to your mobile revenue strategy. They boost game revenue with predictability while maintaining a lawyer user base. Analytics give you data, and data has become fuel on which modern society runs. If you don't know your players, you won't know what they want or how to get them to click that buy button. Analyze your data so you can create critical piece of the purchasing puzzle. Finally, promotions allow you to easily reach out to opt-in players via email or Discord and other channels to bring them to your web shop on your website. You'll be able to generate new sales and keep more profit. To find how to get started, visit Exola dot pro slash mobile or go to the link in this podcast description so anyway so describe actually your the one the one thing like you have the three partners but what what is the actual full team that you do to run all the money that you run yeah so you know right now across um our three funds and then a couple other vehicles that we've set up um, we manage about 270 million dollars um, so that's the AUM of the firm. Um, we have a team of seven who are full-time. Uh, there's three partners. There's three other uh, people on the investment staff. Um, you know, we have a principal and then two, uh, two associates um, who help us process deals. Um, and then we also have a person who heads up our platform. Our platform, you know, a lot of people define this differently. Think of it as portfolio support post-investment. So, you know, once the, once the check has been written, a lot of times the investment team, and we like to consider ourselves very involved, uh, we decided as a firm to invest heavily into that. So we're actually growing and building out that team, which is after investment made, how do we make this operator successful so it's a good outcome for the fund? That's really cool. And I happen to yeah. uh, excuse me, know Danielle, right, um, who works yeah, as Danny an associate is, there. So I will say Danny is smarter than me and Josh. So I will, <laughs> I will confidently say that. Well, so, you know, we, yeah. are, we, are, we are grateful that she joined our team. Um, and you know, we, we, we do have a firm policy that we only want to hire people smarter than us. Um, and so eventually they'll probably just displace us out of a job, but that's, uh, it's been, she's been a great pickup for us. Um, and it really stretched us, I think a lot of different ways on different topics. And, um, that's kind of what you want on your team. She's got opinions. So kind of going back to that, she's got, got takes and that's what you need. 
It's funny because because I actually get approached by a lot of people on LinkedIn because of the podcast, and and she was happened to be one of them who listened to the podcast and reached out and said, "Hey, I'm working at Activision. I'm doing strategy work, and I have this opportunity to join a VC." And I'm like, "Dude, go to the VC. What the hell are you doing at Activision? What a terrible job. I mean, it must be awful. It's like you got to go work." And that's how I first learned of Convoy a few years ago. I love that. Um, I, lo- yeah. I love that. And, uh, yeah, no, she, and she's been great. And, she, and so, like for me, anybody that's like willing just to reach out and be that, uh, uh, I wouldn't say even use the word aggressive just seems like a negative connotation, but being that aggressive and being that forthright, and then also being so eloquent and 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 and, and smart about what she's doing. I mean, I think she went to Harvard or something. She's she's no dummy, right? She's she was at McKinsey. I don't know. She had an amazing background. But uh, but anyway, anybody that does that, I, I hats off and uh, and uh, and I usually respond because I'm just impressed by that kind of gumption. Absolutely, I uh, I have you know I'll, I've I've told a lot of people you know raising our fund, um, you know, I have the firm belief after going through um, this and building this business, you can get to anyone in the world. You just have to try hard enough, right? Um, you know, we live in such a connected economy. Um, eventually, you will get in front of the person. So. You know, case in point, back in the day, if you were listening to somebody, you know, on radio or through some medium, it was pretty hard to actually get in touch with that person. You know, today I always kind of tell people when, you know, I'm trying to, you know, be helpful to especially, you know, people in college or, you know, earlier in their career, I say, you have no excuse. You've got every tool possible to get to that person these days. Um, so the reason you don't get in front of the person you want to, um, it's really just on you. Um, and that's, yeah. You know, I think a lot of successful people, especially in their younger parts of their career today, are fully capitalizing on that. Yeah, quick correction. She worked at McKenzie for two years, and she's a, an industrial engineering degree from Poly State, which I think probably, you know, made you like her, right? Because more of a technical background, I suppose. She, you know, <laughs> I, I, I have an affinity also for people uh, that just hustle. Um, and I think, like, you know, Philip and Taylor and Danny on our, on our investment team and Danuka – um, all kind of embody that where, you know, they, they, they show that gumption, that, that kind of extra mile. Um, and so something we're really proud of actually today is that we've had uh, no one leave Convoy since they've joined. So we have 100% retention since we started the firm four years ago. And uh, we, we really plan to keep that way. And something that's a little, little unique about us is we only hire people, especially on the investment team, that we plan on making partners one day, right? Like we have to envision that. Um, we're not hiring a kind of a churn factory to, to spit people out of. Proud Papa. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <All> right, so <laughs> one of the, the one of the interesting parts about Convoy, from my perspective, is that your focus historically, at least, has been on um, t- more technical side, more like mm-hmm. middleware and, and enabling software, enabling services, et cetera, et cetera, and not really focused on the game side itself. Um, and I, I imagine you kind of said this already part of it's probably your technical background but are there other reasons why like you're focused more on that side of the business as opposed to the content creation yeah so there's, there's a lot of reasons um and I'll, I'll, I'll the 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 top down of it right is um hey look you've got three billion people in the world to play games uh, it's about 38 percent of the global population i think it's sitting up just under eight billion today um one just off the bat there whatever you've got three billion people using uh, we think it it, de- it demands people who are focused on funding companies that support the infrastructure to service those three billion people so that's just the first point the second point i'd tell you is um content is a red ocean 
Um, just generally speaking, it is a red ocean. If you look at, you know, the number of games released last year on Steam, it's, you know, still, you know, topping over 10,000. On the App Store, um, I believe you have over 900,000 games. On Google Play Store, it's over 400,000 games. Like, it is very, very hard to pitch that you're entering a blue ocean market, which I would definitely prefer as an investor. Um, that being said, uh, you can do quite well in content, which is why a lot of people do chase content. Um, is you know, It's incredibly scalable. It can go up really quickly. I mean, look at Fall Guys, look at Rocket League, kind of out of nowhere hits. Um, and I understand the desire. For us, we've just determined as a firm, hey, look, that's not our background. Uh, we haven't run studios. Um, and that's okay. Like, you know what? We think we understand this other side of the business much better. And I'll, I'll, the other couple things I'll highlight here, too, is it's, uh, it's a slower build for most of the businesses that we invest into. Right. Um, you're not going to see typically, uh, you know, 12 months kind of, you know, home run in a B2B business. Um, that's okay. We like that because it's a little bit more defensible, too. There's more of a moat. Uh, those users don't uh, leave quite as quickly. And then the last thing I, I would sort of highlight on, on just on content investing is it's often the most expensive entry point in the market. Um, you know, if you're looking at when you're trying to get into gaming as an investor, uh, most people are, you know, gravitating towards content, and that is where most of the capital goes. And therefore, uh, you're getting 40 million pre-entry points on seed rounds versus 10, and that that's less attractive to me. Um, so, for all those reasons. Uh, also paired with probably that most of the other funds in the space do tend to focus in content. Um, we like to stay and kind of swing at our pitch, uh, and so far so good. And we'll, we'll probably just keep swinging at it. What, what what are some of the most successful companies that you've invested into with exits? Uh, yeah, date? just like one or two yeah. that come to mind. Yeah. So the some of the best companies to date that I'll highlight to you that are still live positions, um, which are things like. Uh, GameFam, which is the largest publisher on Roblox. Um, this is something that we did really early in the seed. Um, we actually had so much conviction we led their series Joe. A. You know Joe? Joe is, Joe is phenomenal. Joe. We're seeing Joe. The evangelist. Here in <laughs> yes, yes. If you, if you know Joe, we love Joe. Joe is going to be here in Denver hanging out with us in about two weeks. Um, so cool. we're excited to see Joe. So that's a great company out of Fund One um, that we backed. And honestly, I... I, I love I love the vision of kind of bringing professional operations to a novice field, which is kind of what I would classify what he did so well. And he navigated such a such a tricky landscape, right? Whenever you're you're trying to produce value for kids, there are a lot of landmines, right? Yeah. Um, and I think he's navigated that super well. That's one that I, I love to highlight. Um, another company that I would highlight to you is Carry First, um, based out of Africa. It's the largest publisher in Africa. Um, they built a really incredible payments rails to allow people to actually monetize that user base. Um, so we led their seed extension, did a big part in their A as well. Um, this is a company that I think is going to the moon um, and very excited about them. Uh-oh, I lost you, Eric. Oh. I was supposed to interview them. And, oh, really? uh, and 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 I and I said no, but I think I probably have to do it now. If you if you if you're talking them up so much, gotta I'm telling out what's you, they uh, they're 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 pretty great. I would go get I'd get on I get on a call with Cordell or Lucy, one of the two All founders. Right. Lucy, and, I think. Um, yeah. yeah, they're they're pretty great. She, Lucy's <laughs> also going to be here in a couple. We're having our our, our summit here in uh, in a couple of weeks for our, our investors and a couple. Oh, of very our, cool. 
Yeah, so we're, we're getting a couple of our companies to come speak to our investor base, so we're excited about that. So um, Lucy will be coming in as well. Cool. Yeah. Um, all right, so the, the one question I always get asked is how do VCs work, right? How do they actually make money? And how yep. much money do they make? And we're going to obviously speak, uh, <laughs> we're going to basically, not what you make, but just in general, what you make. If you, and, and we're just, I'm just going to set this up for you, and I want you to just kind of walk through how VCs get paid and how, what, the, what their annual salary will be depending on how much money they raise. Okay, so if you have a $100 okay. million dollar fund, assuming you have one LP, a limited partner is the ones that invest in the fund, uh, you know, I don't know, small off, family offices, I don't know, whatever, mutual funds, wh whoever else invests in this. All right, you have $100 million, you have two general partners um, and a staff, right? And my question is, how do the economics break down over the life of the fund? How much yep. do they run? What is the management fee, the care? Like, without getting into the goggly goop of all this numbers, like, what, what, how much money do you make and, and how do you make that money? All right, let me, let me, you know, this is a question I'm glad you asked me ahead of time so I could try to break this down simply because it does get uh, into the gobbledygook of numbers here. But assuming you have a $100 million fund, so that would be classified in venture as an early stage fund. I know that sounds like a ton of money. Uh, it is a ton of money. Um, but in the scope of venture and also just general asset management, that is microscopic on, on the scale, right? What are the economics? So typically $100 million, um, you have a lifetime of the fund. It's either somewhere between seven and 10 years. What does that mean? Essentially, in that fund, those investors are signing up saying, hey, look, we're going to give you this capital for this period of time. At the conclusion of that, we're hoping that you've unwound all your positions, return to us the money, we'll see where we're at. Typically, what happens is you get an annual 2% management fee for at least the duration of the investment period. Um, and so what is the investment period? It's typically between on the low, low end, two years. On the high end now, it's probably about four years. Um, so you get about 2% a year to manage that fund. And so 2% of 100, uh, that's you know, $2 million a year. At, that's your, you know, your operating budget to, to, to work with. And then here, here's, here's where the answer becomes a little bit wishy-washy um, for you, Eric, on what does a venture capitalist make? It really depends on what the venture capitalist decides to do with that money, right? Um, in the sense of, well, one, are you going to staff up? Are you going to get a bunch of investment investment members to build up your team? That's one. Um, two, uh, are you going to get an office space? Are you going to travel a lot? Are you going to go to conferences? Are you going to host conferences? Things like that. Um, and then thirdly, I look at, you know, how many partners do you have, right? Um, that's another the huge element to this. So, you know, Theoretically, in a in a world, you know, if if a if there were really just two GPs with a hundred million dollar fund and they chose to never have an office, never travel, only pay themselves, they could each make a million dollars a year. I I will tell you, I don't know anyone personally who chooses to do that. Uh, a million, but, a million. Well, hold on. A million, a million dollars from the management fee, or a million dollars from the management fee plus the returns, the assumed returns. That would be just off the management fee, right? Because if yeah, you're looking right. at 2%, right. I will tell you, I don't know any fund that does that because okay. at the end of the day, you know, that would be a pretty short-sighted move, right? Um, right? Maybe you could get away with that for one or two funds, but at the end of the day, you then do need to actually start thinking of how do I institutionalize, how do I operationalize, how do I get help so I can process more opportunities, um, how do I get in front of the best deals, 
you know, I, I would tell you it'd be very hard for myself, Josh and Jack, to do that without our team and also the providers that we work with to help us achieve that kind of best return. Because really what most venture capitalists are hunting for is carry, right? And what the right. definition of carry is, so let's just kind of go with that $100 million example. Most funds are structured this way. Um, and this is called, you know, the European waterfall method is, and this is what I'd say is very LP friendly and what most funds today are structured as, which is, I will not take a dollar of carry until I've returned $100 million to my LPs, right? So in this scenario. Um, after that, it's an 80-20 split. So let's say, assume I returned $200 million. Um, the GP would have a right to 20% of that $100 million net, right? And so that's what, what, what we're really hunting for is those big opportunities, those big exits. That's like the holy grail for, for venture, right? And so it's very lumpy. That's really what you're hunting for. Um, right. I will tell you that, you know, that does not come uh, in a, a sweet straight line. It's typically like big moment. You wait a while, another big moment. That's typically how that occurs. Right. And so like, okay, so holistically, you basically get 2% management fee for the first four years. So that's like, you could pull a salary of, let's say, for a hundred million dollar fund of like six hundred to eight hundred thousand, somewhere around there, then of the other parts of that management fee go to building the organization, right? Operations, hiring people like Danielle, et cetera. Um, but then the whole goal is to get that big payout, right? And it doesn't come at one lump sum. But let's assume I think you told me at one point that three X is kind of the general average performance of a VC firm, which seems high to be honest. But well, let's assume that's that not that's the average. That's that's what people are shooting for. But yes. Oh, uh, that's that was average, man. I think a lot more people would be in venture for a lot longer. Okay, okay. All right. Yeah. So uh, that's what I thought. Okay. Yeah. That makes more sense to me now. But anyway, so if it's 3x, that means that that $100 million investment becomes $276 million over the 10-year period, let's say. And you discount that back to the present, or you average that out over the years, that's like a billion and a half dollars plus the management fee. So you're talking about like $2 million a year, in theory, that you could be making from being a VC. But obviously, it's very lumpy. And, and you get big paydays at different times. That's, that's, but it's a, that's good, the, it's a good business. That's the hope. That's the hope, right? And I, I would tell you is um, it is a good business. Um, I would tell you it's a little lower than that because I think uh, for anyone who is a business owner, um, there's a lot of expenses that come along the way. So I would probably half most of that and say okay. take 50% of what you probably are saying, and that's probably a little more realistic for people to expect. Um I would All tell right. you that generally speaking, when it comes to running this business, it is a funky one because you don't really know if you're really good until that decade out, right? That's really when you kind of get that feedback loop of like, I'm very good at this or, you know, I'm very bad at this, right? Um, and I think that's what's interesting about this business. It's not a super quick feedback loop because if you're taking especially approach with technology-driven investments, um, you got to let the maturity of these companies kind of play out, right? Um, right and right. I'll, I'll, t I'll tell you, even with Fund One, we've had companies, you know, rise up and rise down. We've had companies kind of stay low and then rise up really quickly, and you're like, that came out of nowhere. Um, and so you, this, this is a game of surprises, right, just generally yeah. speaking. Uh, that actually leads right into my next question. Is like, yeah. what makes a successful venture capitalist? I, I have been investigating the space, you know, going to BigCraft, talking to Play, talking to, like, some of these other guys – um, very, very impressive people just in general in terms of clearly intelligent stuff. But 
I, I, I break it down in a few different things and, and, and I know what the answer is. Like, generally speaking, it's all of it, but like there's industry knowledge, there's obviously relationships with both VCs and obviously LPs, but that's kind of a given, right? You know, biz dev, like the boiling the ocean thing of going out there and meeting as many companies as possible, right? But then there's also deal structuring, negotiation and diligence and all that other stuff. Like, again, I know the answer is all of the above, but like, you know, what do you think is the most important, you know, like maybe rank it? I don't know. Just like talk yeah. about like what makes a like in your view, a successful VC and what other things am I not thinking about? Yeah, I would tell you a couple of things that I think make a really successful venture capital firm is obsession around process. Um, so, you know, we process to date about 700 deals a quarter, right? Like that's what we did last quarter. Okay. Let's stop yeah. there for a moment. Yeah. That is a lot of processing, a lot of right? Yep. What does that even mean? You know, like 700 yep. companies that you're reviewing in theory and interviewing and getting on Zoom calls and talking about bullshit and looking over documents like that seems yep. impossible for what, six people? Yeah. So six, six on the investment staff, uh, you know. I would tell you, hey, we just don't sleep ever. You know, uh, no, I'm just uh, I do, I do, I do have a life. Uh, I try to keep to. Um, so the, the way that you know we define process is we received the opportunity. It hit our desk. We call it our deal desk across the team. We process this deal and say, look, it might as well just be like we'll pull up the deck, we'll look at it. And these are deals, by the way, that fit our thesis uh, and fit gaming. They're in the gaming sector. Mm -hmm. um, so we look at it. We're like, hey, for these quick two reasons we're out, right? Like we do that a lot. Um, and so not all these deals are we on a call with, that'd be, you know, unsustainable. Right. Um, a certain percentage of those do make it into a first call though. Right. Um, and we actually do jump on the call with, with quite a few companies. Um, I think the peak in, in a quarter is probably close to like 150 across the, the six of us, um, where that's the first step. And then obviously start whittling it down to like what goes to the next step, what gets to investment committee, which is where we make the decision to actually vote on an opportunity to then make an investment. We make about uh, 10 to 12 deals, uh, 10 to 12 investments a year. Um, so that's kind of our average. Um, and so how do you whittle down from over you know, 2,000 opportunities to 10? That, that, is, that is a not just an art, but it's really a process. And I'll tell you, we have very defined processes on how to move stuff forward. And I think that is often an edge that a lot of people miss and mess up is because, hey, like, you know what? Just being in the right place at the right time, making sure you weren't tired when you looked at a good opportunity and passed on it, um, that, that's a, that takes discipline. And so something I, I tell you we focus a lot on is discipline of investment review. And, and this is something that's core to us um, on our team. And you guys have like some kind of framework you've built in order to like make those yes, no decisions as you go down. The, we uh, do, and, uh, you know, and I'll tell you a lot of that's uh, a lot of work by, uh, on our side, but we have a very defined framework for how to move opportunities forward and get them in and out. So we say like, Hey, look, you can only have so much on your mental plate at once. Um, you've got to, you've got to scoot yeah, stuff off. Right. Right. If right. it starts stacking up, you're going to make bad decisions. And, um, we've actually reflected at certain times and you know, we study our like historical, you know, precedents for us of, Hey, when do we, when do we make our best investments and when do we make our worst investments? Right. And there's certain correlations with how much time was on our, how much, how many deals were on our plate at the same time? Like, Hey, we don't have capacity to actually review these things. Um, 
So I've spent, we spent a lot of time obsessing about this. Uh, you asked other questions about what makes a good venture capitalist. I also think, um, you know, just truthfully network. This is, there's a lot that is unscalable about this business, and you need to know people. Um, this is definitely a business where getting to know the right people who will refer great opportunities like Eric, you know, you and I know each other, you see an opportunity in gaming, you know, it'd be like, Hey, like, you know, I'm not going to lead this round as an angel myself, but I do know these funds. And, you know, you hope that, you know, we're one of those funds, right. And that takes time and that just takes years. And so you can't really like uh, put NOS on it and just jet into a new industry, then that's what is a moat, right, for funds like ours that have been around for a while where people do know us. Um, we've managed to not piss everyone off, uh, and people still continue to pitch us and enjoy working with us. So <laughs> that that just takes some time. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I guess, uh, yeah, I mean, what's interesting about that is, that that's what I started to uncover pretty quickly is like, you know, with talking with these guys, it is, it is a corp dev exercise more or less of establishing relationships, you know, talking to all these people that are influencers in the business so that you are you know, the first name that comes up when these type of opportunities happen. And I think a lot of people miss that. Uh, it's not as simple as just putting up a, a, a shingle and saying, Hey, I got a hundred million dollars from the Saudis and I'm going to start investing in gaming. Um, so yeah, I, that's kind of was my impression as well. And how like the boiling the ocean idea? And when I when I talk about boiling the ocean, I mean it's more like the meet and greets, like going to like like my biz dev friends at Sony go to these conferences like GDC, and they have fucking back to back meetings from sun up to sundown, and and past that every day of GDC. I mean, is that the type of activity that's required in your view? So I've done that. that. So I've done that. I, yeah. I've done that at every you know conference. I've done that GDC back when E3 was really a conference. Um, right. <laughs> yeah, we'll see how that goes. Um, <laughs> yeah, we'll see how it goes. Uh, you know, Slush, Pocket Gamers, you know, all these groups, right? Like all these places. Uh, I've done the the mayhem approach, right? And that yeah. is an approach. I'll tell you that is not the approach I typically take. I like to take more of a very concentrated bet on. I think that you know, Eric, you and I are going to have a great time together and I'm on, I want to bet that an hour and a half with you is worth it right and I really you know distill it down to having like six meetings a day like that's what I like to do at conferences is you know the three meals um, and then there's three me- uh, meetings in between and I kind of hone in on quality um, that's how I choose to do it um, that also I've noticed keeps me sane because I think in venture capital you know there's there's always the next deal there's always one more opportunity and you know. are there any opportunities that you've missed that you kind of like, you did a postmortem on your process and realized how it slipped through and. Oh man. Eric, uh, yeah, absolutely. We've missed companies, some great companies, right. That would have made us a lot of money and, um, and like hats off to those operators for, for crushing it. Um, but yeah, we've definitely missed, you know, uh, billion dollar opportunities, uh, pretty early on. Right. And, it, the ones that kill us aren't the ones that, you know, you know, sometimes it's out of thesis for us. Like it's a, it's a content studio and that's not something we focus on. That's, that's easier to live with. The ones that are harder to live with where you're like, I thought that this founder couldn't do X. They did X wow, and they proved wow. me wrong. Those wow. are the ones that you're like, hmm. that's tough. Yeah. So we've got a wall of shame. I can't tell you the names <laughs> on it, but we do have a wall of shame. And that, that and, tests uh, your that, that tests your metal, right? That tests your your, your self worth and self uh, 
<laughs> no, I've, I've taken some long walks, Eric, uh, yeah. you know, afterwards. And, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've gone on some of these walks with my wife and, you know, talking here through it. And she's like, you know, I, I, she's, she's helped, helped me mentally process through some of these, these misses. Um, and I You're think like, that stupid, is just stupid, stupid. <laughs> yes. Uh, it's not, not a, uh, not, not relaxing walks. Let's put it that way. But I think that like, those are the moments where you learn, that this is just part of the industry. You're not gonna. You're not gonna have a hundred percent batting average. Um, you're never gonna find perfection. You're always gonna miss something, and you have to live with that, right? And I think yeah. that is. Yeah. That's the hard part about what we do is just missing, and then, you know, seeing the groups that did move, and then you're like, oh no, that could have been us, you know. And that's the tough part about this job. Yeah, no doubt. Um, yeah, you know, one of the concerns I have about VC in general, um, you know. Obviously, you're going to get some big wins, but um, the current market is absolutely horrendous, right? The IPO yep. market is shut. People aren't acquiring that many companies. And, and, and the big, and I said this earlier, but the biggest thing is that there's these VCs that have come into the business, these huge ones, and I won't name names, but everyone knows who they are, um, that have basically created un unprecedented levels of supply for gaming. Like, we haven't seen VC and gaming since the early days of freaking mobile and a little bit on VR, but that was like kind of a really short. So it's like all these guys came in with all these money investing in blockchain, investing in VR, not VR as much, but like free to play and, and maybe some mobile and other stuff. And I'm sure you've been involved in. So it seems like it creates this artificial bubble. And now we're in a market that is down. Like some of these companies are down like 80%, 90%. So yep. How do you navigate these waters? And, and, and more importantly, how do you communicate to your uh, LPs that their 100 million is now worth probably 50 million in current market conditions? Or is that, <laughs> I imagine you don't do that, but I, you know, explain to me like how that process all, how do you manage this during these uh, less than ideal times, let's say? Yeah, uh, I'll say a couple things. See, like you're 100% right, like over the last, two years, you know, venture capital firms raised records amounts of money, you know, like last year, um, I believe it was around 128 billion was raised in VC. Uh, and that is, you know, dramatically up from the, you know, I think 74 billion roughly raised in 2020, right? We're talking about astronomical amount of money that was, that was poured into the private markets. And so that's, that's the, the backdrop. So if you think about you know, if we go back to kind of our earlier discussion around, you know, you've got a two to four year investment cycle, a lot of funds are sitting on that money right now, right? They've raised wow. these massive amounts of money and guess what? They have to deploy it. Um, they've got to deploy this money and that can be good and bad. Uh, so the good part of that is, hey, for entrepreneurs, a lot of these groups still have money to, to go get, to go raise from, which is good for, especially the companies that deserve it. It's not like there's no sources of capital out there. The bad, the bad parts is, you know, one, uh, <laughs> well, there's, there's, a lot of, uh, there's a lot of speculation on if actually a lot of that money is available to those funds. So, so something that happens often in cycles like this is, you know, the pri the, if you think about who gives right, money right. to venture capital firms, there's kind of a couple profiles. There's, um, there's endowments, there's, there's corporations. Uh, so think of, you know, Think of like a Microsoft or like uh, an Activision or like groups like that. Um, that's a corporation. Then you've got, uh, you know, private money from like rich families. Um, and then you've got typically like sovereign wealth funds. Those are kind of like the four 
archetypes. Then you've also got like pension funds across the, the board as well, but I'll kind of want those into endowments and pension funds. Um, a lot of those groups just got hammered uh, in the public markets, right? Like they got, they got hit very hard. You know, we're down, you know, just under 20% year to date on the S&P 500. Um, and, and a lot of those people are, are telling funds, uh, you know, I think especially, you know, the larger funds, like I, I would be surprised if, if they're saying, hey, like we would appreciate it if you didn't draw down capital too quickly, right? So that's, that's not, not uh, out of the scenario. So I would tell you, like, there's a reason a lot of people are moving slower right now. There's a lot of reasons. One is, um, you know, fear because the market is unstable and they don't know what is coming next. Um, that's one. Um, two, we haven't bottomed out potentially on valuations yet. Um, so, you know, this is why if you look at um, gaming deals done last quarter versus a year ago, the same quarter, um, you know, Series A deals were down about 15% in volume. We're down about 47% in Series B, um, and we're down about 67% in Series C for gaming deals, right? Like a lot less transactions occurred last quarter than a year ago the same question. right 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 um so there's a, there's a lot of reasons for this and it's actually a really fascinating study it's like people raised probably more money than they should have for these funds um then you've got a ton of uh groups that fund these funds who are getting impacted by public markets and interest rates um and that is a whole nother discussion um and so a lot of them are just kind of freezing right um and i'll tell you a, a lot of that freezing is something we saw also actually when covid hit Right. So, you know, when COVID hit in March of 2020, that's really kind of the month, I'd say, like the, the markets really reacted March and April and May. You know, we as a firm chose to continue to allocate. Um, you know, we, we actually were really grateful that we did that. Um, we, we backed some some great companies in that time frame. And, uh, you know, we're going to continue to allocate during this this downturn, too. Um, the things that just you have to account for generally is there's a realignment on valuations, right, which got a little bit uh, out of control, I'd say, in 2020 and 2021 for a lot of groups. And so something that, you know, we as a group watch pretty heavily is our average weighted dollar in, like what's the valuation that we're getting in at, and then what's the industry average, and then we want to stay at a certain ratio below that, right? And so we are very well, honed in on that. Okay, so you, you can track that relatively accurately with yes. a certain, like what service, like PitchBook or something? So uh, kind of a combination of a couple of things, but I'll tell you, I'm a big fan of CB Insights. Uh, you know, so shout out to those 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 guys. They have a, they have some great data over there on on the private markets. Okay, cool. Yeah, I, I've been. I'm hoping they give me a discount for saying that next month. You know, <laughs> I feel like I just gave them you know some audience. This is great. Uh, uh, <laughs> all right. So more specifically, I, I guess this is a similar similar question to what I asked before. Is that like unprecedented levels of demand? Sorry, unprecedented levels of capital in the space, bigger VC firms that are spending like drunken sailors and bringing up valuations. That's like one side of the coin, right? The other side of the coin is that maybe some of these companies or individuals or, or spin outs of Riot and, uh, you know, the content guys and specifically, you know, Riot and all the Blizzard people who left and, you know, like the exodus that was Blizzard for the last couple of years. Um, do you think some of those companies how do I say this? Maybe maybe they weren't the right in, people to invest in, but people were so desperate to find investments that they were funding like straight out of, you know, really early. Like, isn't that a huge risk? Like, 
you have a capital valuation risk, but you also have a quality risk of, of the type of investments that were made because were, yeah. people were less discerning, you know? I think, I think this was really highlighted in Web3 and games, right? Right, so, right. Oh, so, my, yes. Yeah, Sorry, so I, I think, I think what, we saw, yeah, what, we, what we saw here was, um, <laughs> gosh, there's a lot there. But I think what we, ha- we saw here is generally this. A lot of people in Web3 were hunting for a new use case outside of uh, financialization or financial products. So right. DeFi is often DeFi, the word yeah, that's right. used. I think there's a lot of great use cases for Web3 in that field. They thought they found games, right? And and a lot of them found that games was going to be the onboarding of users to to leverage Web3 technology. And so I think it's really easy to kind of be down on or crap on like an industry when it's at its low point, which is definitely, it's in a low point right now. Um, but I think what happened was a lot of that capital from Web3 flowed into games and they were like, oh my goodness, this is, this is our, this is our usage savior, right? And they funneled money, 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 money. And pretty much anyone with a pulse in 2021 uh, and 2020 pursuing uh, games uh, with Web3 had an, a strong opportunity to get funded. And, right, right, right. and I think a lot of groups raise money that shouldn't have raised money. Right. And that's just that's just the fact. Um, and so I, I, I'm assuming yeah. you're saying this because you were not one of those people that were investing heavily in Web3, because it seems like you're pretty confident that you, you're avoiding that. So we did, no. So, I mean, we did several deals in Web3 in 2021 and 2020. Um, I'll tell you, we, we learned a lot from it. And I think I would stand by every investment we made in Web3, okay. because to me, like, it's really easy to say, like, the comment on this macro trend, like, two things can be true at once. That was very unhealthy and bad. But then do I think that Web3 has some interesting use cases that can be better for the player base long haul? Yeah, I think that I think there are some good use cases. Like, one in particular that I'm excited about, which I think Sky Mavis kind of pioneered, was potential profit sharing with their, with their player base. Um, and that was something I was excited about, right? Um, and so we made some investments, um, and I think all the investments we made, we can stand by today. Um, but I'll tell you, we were extremely selective um, because we got hit with a lot of the same nonsense that got funded um, by groups that honestly just don't know anything about games, right? right uh, a lot right, of groups funded yeah. things that just don't know gaming. Um, but there's some really smart operators who are, you know, looking to incorporate Web3 into their titles, right? Like there's, there's a lot of great operators from traditional, you know, traditional gaming doing this, um, who are smart and are doing this thoughtfully. Um, but I do think, I do think that web three got the better of gaming in 2021. We learned a lot. We've course corrected. Um, and I think there will be a place for web three technology and games in the future. Um, which is why we're not out on web three, but it's also the reason I chose to not, you know, as a group, you know, Josh, Jack and I, we chose not to raise a fund dedicated to blockchain gaming. And this was, we were actually one of the only funds in games that chose to do that. Um, so that was a little bit different. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm really glad we did. And it's not because I don't believe in it. I just think it's too early. That, yeah. You know, the, the player base is 3 billion ga- gamers versus, I think, you know, there's <laughs> generously uh, the highest stat I've seen is 30 million people in, in, in Web3 titles. I think it's close that to seems, sub, yeah. sub 10. <laughs> yeah, I think it's, it's, it's closer. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so Eric thinks three. I think it's closer to 10. <laughs> uh, I don't think that merits us raising a whole dedicated fund for that strategy. Right. That makes at the sense. Time. 
So that makes sense. So actually, under those guys, like, what are you most looking forward to? We we talked, you know, a big podcast about the metaverse and, and Matthew Ball's like vision of what's to come and sort of thing. So are, are more opportunities around enabling technologies for that interesting to you? Or are there more content in plays that, in, into that world that are interesting? Like what, what, I guess to the extent that you can share it, like what is your kind of a longer term strategy over the next like five years? Right. Um, yeah. In terms of I, I would tell you, um, you know, without giving you my best stuff, Eric, for you to go invest into <laughs> on your own, right? Um, you know, yeah, with my gajillion yeah. dollars in my bank account. <laughs> hey, so Eric, you know, Eric was outlining kind of uh, the sole LP method. You know, he is actually the sole LP of Convoy. <laughs> that is 100% a joke. Um, so we might have to edit that later. Um, <laughs> that's, that's getting in trouble somehow. Um, but, you know, generally speaking, um, what excites me the most is I think there are a lot of industries out there that need to learn a lot from gaming on how to manage engagement with your users, right? There's there's no other activity in the world that commands uh, this type of engagement or this percentage of the planet that we have in common with, you know, in the sense of what the heck does 38% of the world do that's in common other than games? Like, you know, besides eating, drinking, and walking, you know, video games is probably the most common denominator that we've got. And to me, that is like a, the backdrop for why I'm so excited for games to infiltrate things like education. Um, so that's something we've pushed a lot of time and money and energy into is uh, gaming will eliminate the textbook. The way that you learned, Eric, the way I learned in school is not the way that kids will learn in the future. And I think they're drawing their inspiration from gaming because games know how to captivate an audience. Um, so I'm very, very excited about that. I'm also very excited about soft medicine with games. So things about treating things like ADHD, uh, oh, right, right. Uh, anxiety uh, disorders. Um, there is a lot of evidence and a lot of data that is pointing to the fact that games can be actually a core part of that treatment plan, which we're really excited about. Um, gosh, there's a lot of other industries too that I'm excited about. Um, but those, those are some of the ones that get me most fired up today um, because I think they're in dire need of help. Uh, right. And I think gaming can do that. And so I, I don't like the word like the gamification of whatever X, Y, and Z. I think it just let's, let's use like real terms. Like that's why I hate the term like metaverse. Cause it's not defined by anyone well that I've ever heard, but um, you know, like let's leverage the engagement tools that games has figured out for industries that probably need to work on engagement for the better the betterment of our society, right? Which, you know, leads me to like why education needs to learn from games. Um, right. and, and not that I know as much about you, not even close to what you probably know about, but from an education perspective is that all these private schools in, in, in San Francisco are focused on teaching to the kid, right? And, and, and changing the way the curriculum works, like you're an auditory learner, you're a, a visual learner, whatever. And they, they change the entire dynamic of how people learn based upon what type of kid you are. And in the traditional way, that's impossible, right, to do it. But with technology and interactive, you could actually make custom plans for the different types of students that you have. And there's so much research going into this um, um, from the education perspective. I, yeah, I, I can imagine connecting the dots with interactive and helping kind of facilitate that at a much broader level, because it's not it's not as expensive if you're doing it, you know, from a, uh, from a, from a technology perspective than it would be at an individual level of the classroom. You know? 
I I 100% agree. I, I think like just the amount of time that is wasted in the classroom. Um, yeah. Also, it's it's just it's just shocking to me. And like, yeah. let's 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 use technology for this, right? Like, and you know, I, I have a lot of personal te- you know, friends who are teachers, and a lot of teachers in my network, and. Um, you know, I've never been so bearish on our public education system. Holy crap. And, Did you see the recent data on the performance for math and English in, in, in the entire country? They were just, it was just published a few days ago. It is horrific. I mean, the, the, everyone, they are performing at so low levels. It, it is like, it's a catastrophe, right? And I, the, it and, is. It is. And, and, and I, I look at all the money we're spending. And this is all we're getting. Like, we're not doing it right. Let me just say, not to get political, but we're not doing it right. Not at all. Not even close. Yeah, this is where I, you know, I look at, you know, what's what's solvable here. And a, co- a company in our portfolio that is going after this head on is a company called Legends of Learning. Um, you know, currently 5% of elementary schools in the U.S. use this, use, this, they use their platform. Um, actually, if you're looking for another guest who's probably smarter than me, you should go talk to Vadim, uh, who's the CEO um, you know, I'm trying to line your podcast up for the next, uh, the next 10 episodes. Um, <laughs> just, but, just keep pushing your book, dude. Just keep pushing yeah, your book. Keep, it, it works with me. <laughs> it works I, with I, I, I'm, I'm fascinated. I want to learn. So I, I, I will it. bring, I I will bring this guy on. You will have a, you'll have a fascinating conversation with him, but see the, you know, the we, problem we, is we, that I am such yeah. a moron compared to these people that like, he's just going to put me in my place. So I gotta, I gotta do a lot of work to prepare for like talking to people like this. <laughs> You know, but. Yeah, you got to prepare more for him than for me, for sure. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I look at this and, you know, I really do mean this, Eric. Like, I think I think gaming, we've often been slotted as uh, like, it's just fun, you know. And and I, I mean, I play games every day and, um, you know, gaming is at the core about enjoyment and fun. But that doesn't mean there's not a lot of lessons there we can't learn about how do we manage and get people motivated to do things that uh, to eat their vegetables, to, to do their math homework, to, to, to work on English, right? Like to work on their anxiety levels. There's a lot that we can do with from and learn from games. Um, and that, that is something we get very, very excited about. Um, also I, I am a, I'm a big fan of unification tools. I think that that's one of the best modes we have to avoid uh, potential strife in the future and so, you know, something, you know, I was kicking around the other day with my team was, I was like, you know, if, if, you know, unfortunately we ever do enter another, you know, war at the global scale, like what will that look like with all these multiplayer online games where you're playing with people from the other country? Like that's, that's <laughs> never existed before. Yeah. You know, what's, what's CSGO, what's Valve going to do, you know, like, and I find that fascinating. And I, I would like to think gaming's gaming's another mode of, of, of protecting against that. Um, I think there's arguments for why it doesn't matter at all. Um, but, you know, for me personally, I look at games as, as, as one of the great moats we have from uh, mutual uh, mutual self-destruction. Um, and that's a societal tool, I think, that we haven't really explored to the fullest extent yet. That's funny. When you when you said that, I was, that was, like, terrifying, right? Like, all the espionage that's going to go on behind the scenes on TSGO, you know, when these countries are going to war with each other. That's, yeah, that's where my head went, right? It didn't go the other way where, oh, yeah, we can't. Uh, well, Eric, I, I, I might be t- I might be too uh, uh, glass half full on this one. Um, but <laughs> I, I do like the I do like the concept of um, 
you know, and this is definitely speaks to my personal upbringing. Games is a common denominator. Uh, I've, I've played tons of games with people that I do not speak the same language with. Right. Right. And, for sure. And having common denominators is always a good, good way to sort of break down the barriers of kind of demystifying the other. Right. You know, and like, I think that that is something I'm, I'm hopeful for, for like us uh, going forward is that we can leverage gaming for that, for that societal, right. like positive impact. No, and I, yeah, it actually could begin with education. Like it begins with playing games with each other, but education is like seems like an easy win. To even even playing games with people in like Peoria, right? It's like a different experience. Or my son playing games with this guy kid in Alabama. He for like three or four years he was playing Roblox with this kid from Alabama that like lives out in a trailer. You know, it's like <laughs> and listening about his life. You know, it's like. How else do you get that kind of exposure to things? And I know this is a very obvious thing, but it's the same idea. It's like, you know, and, and, and it was and it was really good for him to learn how other people live. You know, it's it's hard to do when you live in San Francisco. <laughs> I think that's that's a great point. I mean, it's just it's a way it's a great touch point for people early on uh, yeah. to experience things outside of their neighborhood. Right. Um, <laughs> there's there's the other side of that, which uh, makes you want to protect kids from experiencing <laughs> things outside of their neighborhood. But um, at the same time, like generally, I think it is a net positive um, and you know, something I, I'm, I'm super bullish on. Yeah, I, yeah. I'm definitely going to look out this Legends of Learning, get him on. Um, all right. I think we're going to leave it at that. I have, I, yep. um, the last question I'm going to ask on everyone is like, in what way do you think your product and service kind of helps solve problems or innovate in, in the interactive industry? What is your position and that helps you kind of like facilitate uh, innovation? I think, you know, at this, at this time when, when early stage founders launch a company uh, and they take money from people, they, they are taking partners early on to help them think through and shape their vision of their company, their product, uh, who they hire, where they go to. And those entrepreneurs, I think should demand that the money they're taking isn't dumb money, right? And I would hope to think that Convoy is smart capital in the games industry, that we're not just a passive check that just sits there idly by, because that's not what they need at this stage. They need help, right? Like they're, when they're launching a company, you need tons and tons of help. And I think that Convoy's fit in the market and the, the thing that we're doing to help innovation is – we are we dedicate ourselves to becoming you know not as expert uh not as great as experts as they are at their craft but we're we're a, a voice that you should listen to in the room and i think that that is something we try to really stick to um i, I you know we spend a lot of time of like if sometimes we pass on companies we're like we got nothing to offer you like you shouldn't take money from us and <laughs> i hate doing that but like sometimes that makes sense where i'm like I'm trying to do you a favor. You should go get somebody who knows a lot more about this than me. Right. Um, so anyways, I, I hope to be part of that movement of VCs that are smart money, um, that aren't just kind of cheerleader checks on Twitter, um, that we are actually in the trenches with them, you know, battling it out uh, and, and helping them through really tough stuff. Because, you know, launching a company in good times or bad times is hard. And I'll tell you, this cycle um, – is going to be tough for a lot of a lot of companies to go through, and I always tell like the best way to ask for a 
uh, a check on a VC is don't ask to talk to the, what, whatever founder reference they have. Ask to talk to a company that shuttered down under their portfolio to see what they acted like. That's, that's when you get the real, the meat of like, who are these people, right? Like, are they, are they jerks? Are they unhelpful? Um, and hopefully like, you know, hopefully I stand the test against my own, my own kind of qualification, but that's something we really try to do is not to abandon people when they need us. Very cool. Well, thank you, Jason, for taking the time to chat. Um, and I'm sure we'll, we'll speak soon and good luck with your conference next week. Thanks, Eric. And say hi to Danielle. I, I will. So hopefully I'll say something smart at the conference. Hopefully. <laughs> Let's keep people coming back. Um, right, thanks, for, thanks for your time. Appreciate it. Right. Bye now. Thank you for listening to the whole episode. If you like this podcast, please do leave a comment and share the episode. If you want to access the Deconstructor of Fun community with hundreds of senior games folk, go to our website and apply to the Slack group. And if you want to get notified of all the new content we have coming out every week, do subscribe to the weekly Deconstructor of Fun newsletter. Finally, do remember, we love you guys and we appreciate you guys. Catch you next time.